This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 157 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, with the help of special guest Remy Nakamura, we discuss the second half of Misha Green's 2020 series, Lovecraft Country. Our guest this week is Remy Nakamura. Remy is a writer of weird, dark, and Lovecraftian fiction. You can find his stories in Escape Pod, Pseudopod, and a variety of anthologies. Welcome back, Remy. Hey, guys. It's good to be here. It's good to have you back, man. Uh, we're here for this show. We are finishing out our month of Lovecraft Country in the month of October. It definitely feels appropriate for the season. Um, I'm having a lot of fun with this one. How about you guys? Oh, this is a blast. Yeah. He, I mean, I'm just having the most fun with this story and the, this show, watching the end of the show. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like the, it, it kind of kicked into a different gear in the second half, and I, I'm, I'll be excited to hear what you have to say about it. Absolutely, man. It... it uh, the heavy, I mean, it's weird to say that you're having fun with it, right? When there's so many like super heavy topics and, and, and history lessons going on. Um, but yeah, we'll get into each of those. Uh, before we do get into that, I just wanted to mention, I voted this week and it felt fucking amazing. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I voted for Joe Biden and it felt like one of the like first really actionable things I could do in the last four years. And uh, anyway, I highly recommend it to our listeners if you haven't done it yet. It is. It feels yeah. great. It's a unique high. You, you know, you're, <laughs> yeah. if you're if you're chasing that unique high, vote and uh, see how see where that gets you. I, I read a post uh, online somewhere where a lot of Oregonians, I think, got their ballots on Thursday or Friday, and that night um, he walked his ballot to the to the drop box. Uh, local Dropbox. And as he mm-hmm. walked there, he said it was like a movie, like all these people kind of converging on the ballot place, all very determined, <laughs> you know, grim looks on their faces. <laughs> a rising score. <laughs> yeah. It, it, we've talked about this a little bit, um, but I, when I was raised, it was like, don't talk about religion and don't talk about politics when you're when you're around people. It was It was sort of a taboo subject. And I think this came from my mother being sort of, uh, she was a Democrat, um, and most of my family is not. And so I think she learned from experience, like, it's better to just not talk about it because it's going to be an argument, so let's just leave it alone. She knew that she was going to have to argue with people if she talked about it. But I, you know, also over time, I've learned that not talking about politics and leaving everything sort of unsaid, uh, it, it benefits the status quo. It means that everyone... Um, can just be comfortable with their with their beliefs and never have them challenged. And um, so it's going to benefit certain viewpoints. And if anything, this show has sort of reinforced that belief that like we all need to be a little bit more outspoken. And that's a reason why we chose to talk about it a little bit on the podcast. Whereas, you know, old Luke would have probably been like, oh, no, we shouldn't talk about that just in case it, you know what I mean, like upsets the balance. And what if we turn off certain listeners? And it's like, no, it's more important to, I think, take a stand. Um, and be principled on some things. So anyway, that's why I wanted to talk about it. And hopefully our listeners appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, appreciate <laughs> that. And I think that I think there's a growing awareness that silence itself 
um, the, the decision to not talk about politics is political, right? And like you said, it supports the status quo. Well, let's get into the show. It is such a odd mix. I don't know if you listened to our coverage of the start of the show, but I, I mentioned how it continues to be like sort of more over the top and campy at times than I ever imagined it would be. And that does hold true through the rest of it, but the more like super dramatic, serious stuff also elevates to another level in the second half. And it's such an odd blend, but like I, I found myself really, really enjoying it. It just, it, it is unlike anything else I think I've seen. Yeah. I, I mean, I wanted to ask you, Remy, specifically, like through, since you weren't here for the first five episodes of our coverage, um, do you want to sort of just give your general thoughts on, on that first half and then maybe lead into your, your thoughts of the, of the show overall? Sure. Yeah. Um, the whole series has been an homage to genre, uh, and to maybe to pulp specifically. Um, mm -hmm. and I feel like one thing that Misha Green has tried to do very ambitiously is try to fill this void of blackness, right? That, that from all of the pulps that that um like that that atticus and and uh and his family grew up on and loved and many black viewers uh and readers also uh loved but didn't see themselves in it right and so um like that indiana jones-ish uh scene uh that i think you both uh, mentioned from the last episode um isn't that that, that that now we have um you can imagine black adventurers in that space, right? Where maybe there's been a real uh, dearth of that uh, in the past. Um, and so I feel like there have been all these different sorts of, uh, you've got this Asian horror, right? You've got uh, the Chucky type horror. You've got um, <laughs> Indiana Jones style tomb raiding type adventuring. Um, you have all these different sorts of more ghost uh, haunted mansion, haunted house type of horror. Um, I feel like they're, they're trying to fit in as many different things as possible, uh, in this and make up for a lot of lost time, a lot of lost decades of storytelling. Yeah. I read Misha Green talk about, um, basically an interviewer had asked, did you feel like you were cramming everything in? And, and she basically kind of said, no, I didn't feel like we were cramming anything. It just felt like all of the things that we wanted to do, we were getting to do. Um, and so like getting to take advantage of that, I, I think that, that sh the show does that very well. Um, and I, I, for me, for like sort of just quick general th thoughts, something, a word that I wrote in my notes many, many times was profound. And I kept feeling like uh, every, you know, I don't think the show is entirely perfect, but I do think that the, when, when it gets to those moments where it touches me in my soul and my heart, like those profound moments uh, like sort of transcend any, any, anything that, um, I don't know, anything that's really on TV right now, anything that's really going on, um, in, in films, like it's, it's, it's up in that upper echelon and it's, and it's really interesting because of the campy nature of the rest of it. Um, you know, there are moments that deal with things that are some of the most serious, like racial injustices in history. And then, you know, the next moment there's a giant, uh, Shogoth or whatever they're called, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, it, it's this really, like you said, Luke, it's a really interesting blend. Um, but I find myself walking away really, you know, it's thought provoking. And I think it, that that was what the intention of the show was. But at the same time, it is like the there's a there's a lot of time for 
black people to explore the space that they haven't been able to, like you were saying, Remy. So yeah, I think just overall, it's, it's, it's a show that's going to stick with me. And I would add the, the sci-fi elements are, are really strong in this too, right? With, with a sort of time travel, uh, you know, space time stuff that Hippolyta gets into. The show is on a meta level working as a conversation with genre and with, um, what the established status quo is of what the characters look like who are involved in these sorts of adventures. And I do think you like some awareness of that going into the show will help because it is so directly in the text of what is happening on screen. Um, I really don't think that this is sort of like, I don't think it's just a meta discussion. I think it is important for, for sort of following what is happening on screen because, um, I could see like maybe if you come into this completely ignorant of what the sort of history of black people in genre fiction has been, um, you maybe don't appreciate exactly what is trying to be achieved on screen. I, I wonder how much of it there's like a literacy thing of like being aware of, of, of where that's at um, that will help you to enjoy the show fully, I guess. I don't know. Do you yeah. think that's true? I- I mean, I think that a, p- a part of this show that's going to turn people off is that they were swinging for the fences t- to the yeah. to the max. Like they were going for everything they wanted to try to do. They went for it 100%. And I think that there's going to be some people who look at it and say like, this is way over the top. I cannot, I can't. And then there are, there's probably also going to be people who are going to see things like Emmett Till or, or Tulsa and say like, how are they going to take that and narratively, you know, create fiction around it and like be maybe be like offended by that. But I, I don't know. I think that the I, I think there's a lot of reasons where where people could could like sort of push back against it. But I think if you give your, like you said, if you if you have some knowledge of, of the atrocities that have happened in America and you also are you know open minded going into this show, I don't see how it doesn't you know sink its teeth into you because you're going to get invested in the characters emotionally. Um, I think a lot of them have great journeys. And uh, and then like like I've said throughout this whole thing, the sort of Lovecraftian elements are are the icing on the cake for genre fans it's like that's the stuff that people are coming for because it's called lovecraft country and then mm. you stay for the fact that like the allegories there of you know everyday racism is is a horror unto itself and, and all of that so i i agree i do think that there there will be some people who who don't necessarily it's it's not going to be for everybody and i think there will be some people who push back against it but i i ask i would recommend that people give it a shot for sure Another thing about the show that that I think is is amazing is just I think it's unflinchingly diverse and inclusive in the stories that it's telling. But if you guys are ready, I want to move into episode by episode discussion. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I'm excited. Okay, so episode six is potentially my favorite episode of the show. Uh, I just want to start by saying that. But uh, it's called Meet Me in Daegu. In 1949, South Korea, Jia studies to be a nurse and lives with her mother who demands she pick up men to have sex with. Jia brings home a man and kills him with her tentacle-like nine tails that project out of her body. It is revealed that Jia is possessed by Kumiho, the nine-tailed fox spirit, and she must kill 100 men to be human again. Her stepfather was molesting her and her mother had a shaman send the Kumiho to possess her daughter to kill him. In 1950, the Korean War begins and Jia works as a nurse. To smoke out a communist spy, the Americans arrest the nurses and Atticus executes one of the nurses. Jia's friend, Young Ja, reveals herself to be the spy. Jia decides to seduce Atticus with the intention of killing him, but falls in love with him instead. Jia believes she can control her tails, but while having sex with Atticus, her tails emerge and attack him. 
She has a vision of his future and tells him he will die if he returns to America. Atticus ends the relationship. Gia and her mother consult the shaman who tells them that many more will die. I, I did not expect the show to go in this direction. I And uh, <laughs> I, I was blown away. I could not believe this is a movie unto itself. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of its own thing. And uh, again, I found this to be really profound. And I thought that the way that we were able to see the Korean War with this idea of a, you know, a cursed spirit, which is sort of in that Lovecraftian fantasy, you know, realm, uh, all with tons of subtitles and actual, you know, the the actual language that's being spoken in, in Korea. I just, I, I don't know. I, th- I felt like it, it was such a, a change from what we were seeing with Jim Crow uh, America, and uh, it was a welcome change. I, this is definitely one of my favorite episodes as well. And, um, uh, my my background, um, I grew up uh, partly in Japan. My mom is is uh, native Japanese, and uh, so a lot of the storytelling elements that suffuse East Asia, like the nine tailed fox, and I'm I'm trying to avoid saying tentacle porn, but I'm going to say it tentacle porn. It is it is a thing <laughs> that is <laughs> that exists. Yeah, you, I think you can't quite help but think of that if you're aware of its existence. And and that was uh, that was one thing that was actually uh, kind of powerful because I think um, the in the history of tentacle porn, which I'm going to go down that path just a little bit. Um, <laughs> Tell us about the history of tentacle porn, Remy. <laughs> I, I think it's lar- it was largely developed because um, you couldn't show a, a male phallus on on um, screen, but there was still this desire to show, I guess, sexual violence against women, basically. And so I think that's how that that's the whole history behind that. So here you have this woman, uh, an Asian woman. Uh, and especially with a Korean background, where there's um, um, you, there's there's the history of Korean comfort women uh, who were like basically sex slaves for uh, Japanese soldiers. Um, so you have, I feel like, a, a reversal of all of that. Like uh, here is a woman who who has this power, right, and who has the the ability to uh, sexually. Um, um, I'm, I'm definitely not not. I don't want to say that I support depictions of rape in any sense, but I feel like this is a really important, um, uh, like a subversion of those tropes uh, that have dominated um, uh, Asian anime uh, and a lot of storytelling for a long time. So I was really excited uh, uh, when I realized, I think a little bit before they described it, I was like, oh, I'll bet there's some connection between her and and the whole Legends of Ninetale uh, fox spirits and uh, um, and then um, this whole uh, subversion of the uh, tentacle porn uh, tropes uh, I all of that was was pretty uh, exciting to me yeah I didn't even pick up on the on the history of the tentacle porn stuff and, I, <laughs> and I, you know I, I mean that's a good point though you know it, it this shows about like reclaiming things and I think like a reclaiming of of that for women as a, as a subversion to what the norm was is, is pretty interesting. Yeah. I think you're, you're hitting on the exact thing they were going for there. Remy. I, I didn't know maybe all the specifics, but it, it, it did feel like that was being engaged with directly. I mean, 
that moment is is a standout moment from the entire series and just shock like mm-hmm. I, you know like you knew something was going to happen but but man uh that first that very first man she brings back and they've done so much to sell you on this character and and you think she's like being really shy and like that's just how she is as a person but then you like learn it's because she's like trying to figure out how to be a human being um, and then, man, yeah, when that when the when the tentacles or the tails, I guess they are first come out and then we get that when, when they back away. And I thought when you could see the silhouette it was really powerful. <laughs> um, and then, yeah. Uh, wow. What a what a moment um, in general. I, I agree with you guys. This was an amazing episode. Probably it's definitely in my top three of the series. Um, and it it felt like it could be its own show. Like I, I would have watched a show about just Gia and Atticus in Korea. Like that would have been enough for me. It was so good, so well done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and they really went for it with everything, really. Um, and and uh, the darkness of the war and what it did to Atticus um, was such an important piece of his character. And something that um, I'll just go ahead and say, we read the book. This is all absent in the book. Um, it was all ad- uh, added, and I really wanted to compliment Misha Green on this because I think it added layers to Atticus as a character and was some of the best stuff in the series, which was wholly invented for the series. So whenever you see something like that, you know that the creator has really taken it and decided to to put their own spin on it and their own their own touch to it, and, and it worked really well. I have to talk about the fact that Gia is like, fascinated by, by you know American films specifically, and uh, the way that she's kind of like, we know she's a spirit and watching films to sort of like understand humans and then realize empathy through film. And I think like, as, like you have to think of a filmmaker, anytime they're talking about film, there's something being said there. And I think it's the, that this idea of empathy being found through shows or movies or things like that. And that's exactly what this this show is trying to do is, is find the empathy in people so they can empathize with maybe somebody who's different than them. Um, and you know and then i just love the fact that she she loves like judy garland and and i love that uh they like she and and atticus have like a bond over over the films and and the moment when he like is able to get the reel from george so they can watch uh the film together in on the base and everything i just i don't know mm. i was really taken with all that stuff did you catch the um the voiceover uh at the end that that's julie garland yeah that led me down a rabbit hole uh after watching that episode of just learning about um, uh, how um, Julie Garland's career went. Um, and it made me kind of rethink the entire episode too. Just, I, there are so many different ways to look at this one episode, right? And so one of it, one of the ways would be to just look at, um, uh, it is kind of a, um, I don't know, like a homage to, to, to Hollywood of, of the time, right? And to, to um and maybe some specific uh, um, homage to Julie Garland. Um, and then she's talking about how, uh, I think something about how um, people are trying to dehumanize her, right? I can't remember what the specific quote was. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, her her history is so, she was taken advantage of in Hollywood, the ways that, and like, you know, it's very well known, like it was basically dealt, dealt with abuse throughout her career. And she was like the, you know, the it person at the time, you know, like everybody wanted to be here, everybody loved her. Um, and so, yeah, he, it was really, like I said, 
I keep feeling like the word profound is coming to me. It's really profound to hear an older Judy Garland sort of look back at her her career. And then you put that on top of this episode. And like you said, you can draw all kinds of meaning. I, I love that. Wow, you guys really dove into it more than I did. I, I, I actually wrote that down. I was like, oh, look up who's, who, that, who did that quote. And then I didn't do it. So um, I'm glad you brought that. Um, that's news to me. But but yeah, this episode also really deals with the Count of Monte Cristo in a way that I was really excited about. Um, and then I love the line that the Atticus hit uh, Gia with when uh, she she smugly sort of tells him the ending, and then he says, "Well, that's how the, that that was a really you know uh, useful way to end the movie, but that's not how the book ends." And I just thought like, "Ooh, ink to film," yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is the <laughs> yeah. kind of shit we get to talk about. Um, we should cover Mon- Count of Monte Cristo, by the way, at some point. That would be fun. Yeah. I wanted to call out one thing um, that I don't know if it troubled me. It, it definitely troubles me. Uh, it's Atticus's um, murder of uh, Gia's friend. Um, yeah. And the there are a couple other points that kind of align with that through the series. Uh, we see that with Montrose, right, in his murder of Yahima. I mean, these are innocent people. These aren't people who have persecuted they're not def- they're not killing in self-defense they're not killing in revenge these these deeply deeply morally complicate um uh, mantras and, and atticus yeah you know and i was gonna i was gonna bring that up because i, I think especially Montrose's murder is not handled particularly well um, it, it feels like it, it really doesn't hold a lot of weight for him going forward. It's not something that we really circle back on very much. It's kind of just forgotten about. Um, and, and yeah, so I think that one really bothered me. Um, but I can see it here with Atticus too. He does pay a price somewhat for this with, with Gia, but it seems like she forgives him for it. And then we, we kind of move on. Um, but I, I agree. It almost felt like maybe that was a little too easy. Like it, it was a really heinous thing that he did there. Um, I, I guess it was to me, I lumped it more into like the, the, the horrors of war and the thing that people get, get into. Um, but this did feel particularly egregious. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, it definitely troubled me. I agree with you. I actually paused it to like, oh, just to see like, did Atticus do that or did the other guy do that? Like I, I was Mm -hmm. so in disbelief uh, that Atticus would do that. And I'm in, I'm sort of with with Luke because I felt I felt the same way. Like I think this was a moment of saying like the the horrors of war, the things young men are made to do, unexpected to do, uh, and then have to come back with that. And and especially being a black man who who's coming back to a country that hates him, um, and having to having done those kinds of things and complicating. I think you know complicating a character and creating gray there. I think is good for depth as well, but it was pretty horrific. Like it was definitely, it was definitely, mm-hmm. you know, one of the worst things you can ever do. Um, I have two things that I wanted to mention because we've now spoken about two things that uh, Misha Green has talked about. So the first one, since we're talking about um, Yahima a little bit, the a deadline reporter uh, asked her a question recently um, because she she's active on Twitter. Misha Green's very active on Twitter and she's addressed some stuff. So the deadline reporter said, unlike the position many creators take, you engaged you engage directly with your audience over criticism, most recently over your admittance admittance on Twitter that you feel you failed in the telling of Yahima's tale in the fourth episode, A History of Violence, in attempting to show the uncomfortable truth that oppressed folks can also be oppressors. Why did you decide to go that way? Misha Green has said. 
As a, as a person and a storyteller, I'm interested in growing, and part of that journey is accountability. Acknowledging my failure and the handling of Yahima's storyline is the first step in holding myself accountable. Now, I also wanted to read the te- the tweet that she sent someone, because someone said, uh, if you're at Misha Green, if you're still answering questions, I would, I would still love to hear an explanation from you on why y'all chose to portray Yahima the way y'all did. And she she responded, I wanted to show the uncomfortable truth that oppressed folks can also be oppressors, but I didn't examine or unpack the moment slash portrayal of Yahima as thoroughly as I should have. It's it's a story point worth making, but I failed in the way I chose to make it. Mm. Um, so yeah, I wanted to get your guys' take on that because I, I you know I think ultimately the character w- wasn't on screen; it didn't have enough to do. There wasn't enough impact there necessarily. Um, and you know, I think Misha realizing that is 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 huge. Can I say as um, I, I am queer, um, and if any moment almost lost me as a viewer, it was Yahima's killing, um, partly mm-hmm. because it is such a trope. Uh, and here they introduced um, this two spirit character, and then and a two spirit native like a tribal character and then just killed them off without any cost to to mantras or to the other kitchen and so i remember thinking i remember actually ranting a little bit about it to to my partner uh and saying i need to see if mantras pays for this like what is the cost to mantras and and actually i think what um saved the series, besides its amazingness in every other way, <laughs> for me was Misha's <laughs> apology uh, and acknowledgement as a creator that um, that she screwed up on that, that she uh, in in her handling of because um, it's 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 a it's lazy, right? As a as a a creator to just bring somebody in for somebody else's um, I don't know for plot development or character development, and then to just let them go and and then when you do it with uh someone who is so marginalized uh, with a group of people who are so marginalized uh and you reinforce uh stereotypes and, and tropes uh it's even more egregious and so i'm i'm really glad uh that that apology of misha's and acknowledgement carried a tremendous amount of weight for me and i can't imagine for other tra- transgender viewers or other members of of uh, the LGBT uh, community, I think that that meant a lot. It's almost ironic that you have an, a creator who is trying through the storyline to show marginalized people um, oppressing other marginalized people, but then falls into the same trap that we've seen so many white creators fall into, right, of creating a character fully to service another character and not fully realizing them and giving them their own agency in the in the story. And I do love that she came out and apologized for that. I think it shows a, a nice example for creators to realize that so many of us are going to make mistakes, even with the best of intentions, and it's better to just own them. Um, and, and, you know, you have to take you have to accept the criticism you know what i mean like you're you're probably going to feel defensive because you're going to know the things you meant to do um but you have to it's something that you're going to have to learn to live with and learn to 
grow through. Um, and the fact that Misha Green is doing that, I, you know, exactly. I want to give her props for it because it's difficult to do, right? Like we all have egos and we all don't want to admit when we're wrong. And uh, the fact that she's doing that, you know, props to her. Yeah, lots of respect for her for that. So another thing I wanted to talk about was um, we were talking about the spoken word voiceover sort of poetry slash just like other clips of people speaking through, you know, throughout history. Um, And again, someone asked her sort of like what, you know, how did you go about doing that? And like, what was the inspiration for that? And she mentioned, Misha Green mentioned, it was it was Beyonce's Lemonade and I Am Not Your Negro at the same time. Um, she said basically like she, she sauced people doing this and was like, Ooh, that this is a quote. Ooh, this is exciting. That feels fresh. I wonder if we can do that on Lovecraft country. Uh, it also came from a desire to make this feel like a piece out of time. Yes, it's set in the past, but it's also very much here in our present and it will be here in our future. How, how do we take these found footage audio pieces and place it there? So you understand that this is our history. This is us now, and it can be us in the future if we don't pay attention to it. Um, and, and another moment of sort of the profound coming back for me, those audio clips in these episodes, a lot of times, like the, the implication that the episode already has on its own, but then you add in actual historical elements or, or sort of poetry by, by a black, um, artist, or you add in like these iconic moments from people like Judy Garland talking about her, her past and her history with Hollywood. Um, I just, again, this is to me just like speaks to like Luke was saying, the meta level of, of all of this within yeah. our world. To me, that's the sign that uh, what I was saying is true <laughs> and that this show wants you to engage beyond its bounds and to look at the historical uh, context and think about our modern lives and how this all intersects. And I think including these kind of quotes, when you might look at it and go like, oh, this is odd to, to take this and put it over this scene and like, yeah, modern music, stuff like that. Um, but I think it all achieves that effect that she was going for and that it does make the, the series feel modern while being a, a, a sort of history uh, piece. Um, yeah, I think it works. Um, it is a little unusual, but it, it, it feels fresh in that way, like she said. Yeah, and, and added weight, you know, adding like, and I think that's another thing, like ancestry is huge in the story as well. And the idea of like the past suffering of ancestors and, and you know, what that represents to people today and everything and, and getting to hear people who are no longer alive and speak on mm. a show that's currently going. I just, it, it's James Baldwin. Extremely profound. Yeah. To me. Episode seven is called I am Hippolyta visits the ruins of the Artem lodge and discovers that George was there. She works out how to use the Ori and finds a key hidden within Christina shows Ruby, the corpses of William who was killed by Lancaster and Dell and asks for her help. Letty and Atticus discover that they are both having dreams of Hannah, Atticus's slave ancestor, and deduce that she escaped with the Book of Names. Atticus discovers his father's homosexuality while Letty finds she is pregnant. Atticus goes to St. Louis to contact a relative and is told the Book of Names was lost in the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. Hippolyta goes to the Winthrop Observatory and uses the key. Letty finds the Ori and tells Atticus where Hippolyta has gone. Atticus saves Hippolyta from two of Lancaster's policemen, but in the struggle, a portal to another dimension is open, which Atticus and Hippolyta both fall through. Hippolyta discovers she has the power to be whoever she wants, befriending Josephine Baker in 1920s Paris, becoming a Dahomey Amazon who defeats a group of Confederate soldiers and meets George again, finally embracing his true identity as a discoverer. Atticus returns from the other dimension. So I, again, this this episode, I think, goes places that 
that almost no show has gone before. You know, it, it really opens up a can of worms and, and we're able to see multiple different parallel universes. We see uh, all kinds of cosmic stuff. What, what did you guys think of this episode? This episode is, to me, one of the most visually stunning um, and directly engaging with sci-fi, right, episodes. And I, I was really taken with how this is a kind of character in Hippolyta that does not ever get to do this sort of thing. It is a, uh, I, I hope I'm being accurate when I say middle-aged black woman um, going on a, on a, on a multiverse-spanning adventure and, and being the star and getting to, you know, learn how to fight and getting to learn to be confident and um, living all these lives and, and it's just something that like you take that story and you put a white man in it and you're like yeah I've seen that many a time but but right. for her to do it felt really special and, it, and and once again on a meta level felt like this is important to see this happen and um, yeah I, I was I was really taken with it and it is so it was almost like um, Doctor Strange levels of, of bizarre sort of space flying uh, over the top stuff, right? But it, it it all works in that way, and um, I was really happy to see that something that was so huge in the book even sort of get bigger in the show and and go farther. Yeah. And um, it it really does go to a lot of weird places. But I was along for the ride and very happy for this one. Um, unlike maybe episode the episode we talked about before, I want to say it was episode four, the the sort of Indiana Jones adventure where it felt like they tried to go so big with it that they lost me a little bit. Um, this one really hit home. So I liked it. I feel like um, so much of this is, uh, um, I don't know. When we read pulps, especially, we want to see ourselves in that story, right? We want to be the hero. We want to, uh, we're living vicariously mm -hmm. through, maybe it's John Carter and going to this fan fantastic Mars and, and, and being the hero. And, uh, and I feel like, um, I would say that most of the history of science fiction, especially maybe in the, I don't know, the mid third of the 20th century is, which is where these, um, these characters, where Lovecraft Country is largely set, uh, pulps are wish fulfillment fantasies for white middle class men. Um, maybe take the middle class out of there. I don't know, but it's it's largely uh, it centers white men. Uh, it's their adventures. They're uh, straight white men, right? Because they're hanging out with uh, they're rescuing you know like uh, curvy princesses uh who are scantily clad and and this is what you see on all of these uh um, iconic pulp uh magazine covers but here you have uh like you described uh hippolyta you know a, a mother a black woman uh who's sacrificed so much for her family uh and and who's living in this jim crow era america that limits her as a black person that limits her as a woman um, and here she gets to hang out and live this artistic life with Josephine Baker. She gets to just slay a bunch of Confederate soldiers in the most badass way you can imagine. Uh, and then she gets to go to every possible conceivable world imaginable. And she gets an apology from her husband. <laughs> and so I yeah. just feel like in so many ways, right, this is this is wish fulfillment uh for 
Hippolyta and anybody who can um, who can empathize with her, who can relate to her. And uh, in in all of the imagery, especially towards the end, where they they see the they're coming out of the spacecraft and they're wearing the um, their outfits and uh, um, everything about that is um, very it evokes those pulps. I loved the the connection to the comic. You know, she became uh, I can't think of the name of the or 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 yeah. Orthea so, Blue. Yeah, Orthea Blue. So her, I loved that, like, she, you know, she becomes this character that her, her daughter sees her as already, and, and like that. Um, and uh, like you said, Remy, the, the, the part that, you know, this is such a, such an expansive story, and it's so fun to go along on this journey. But the part that really, that really hit me was the conversation she has with George. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, as a straight white man, I can't, you know, I, I, I'm not putting myself in the shoes of, of a, you know, Jim Crow era black woman very often and, and the opportunity to do that in the show and to understand how, you know, how someone like that could be feeling, uh, you know, trapped in, in a world and a relationship she's been forced into almost seemingly. Um, and, and, you know, just the, the, the way that, that George is apologizing for, for holding her back from all of the things she could have been. I, I just, I, you know, it's not, not something I think about very often, um, and I appreciate the show for, you know, taking me to that, to that place. It's, it's showing what you were talking about, Remy, uh, and Misha Green even said, like showing the way that oppressed people can oppress. Right. And, uh, I think we're seeing here, it's very important that, um, it's a man who is, you know, himself marginalized yet. He is maybe he's tied into that society, of uh, sort of the patriarchy. Right. And, and he is complicit in, and sort of holding back his wife from, like you said, the things that she might have been able to achieve. And yeah, to hear him apologize and admit the role he played in that because he wanted the comfort of having a wife at home for him, a a place of safety when he's going out on his adventures for the, for the book that he's writing. I I love the way those all intersect and um, it was bold, you know, and it, it, it underlines what she was trying to do in showing characters who, you know, interact with uh, oppression in many different ways and how, you know, it's not like all the black characters in this show are beyond reproach themselves, you know, never oppress anyone. Um, That is definitely not the case. Um, And I wanted to bring that back to something else that happens at the start of this episode, um, which is easy to lose in sort of the, 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 the multiverse spanning story we get, is we see Atticus for the first time be confronted with Montrose's sexuality. And I thought it was a really just brutal scene of um, him dropping, you know, the F slur at his father and then having like a meltdown over it. Um, and, and you know, it, Montrose is a complicated character who's done things that um, I think he, he is sort of, uh, we talked about, you know, he, maybe he doesn't pay the price for it that he should have. But here I felt so bad for him. And, um, Shout out to Jonathan Majors because he does this like hyperventilating thing. I don't know if you've noticed this where he like mm-hmm. clutches his stomach and he like breathes really heavy and stuff. And like, it's so affecting. Like I felt myself like reacting every time I saw him do it to whatever situation he was in. So, you know, props to him for doing it. Um, it really works. And he does it here. Like, you, you know, he runs down the stairs and he's like doing this breathing thing that really got me. I don't know. I, I'm really curious to actually know your, your thoughts on this whole scene, Remy. You know, it's... um. 
I don't know if I have strong reaction to this specific scene because now kind of Montrose's um, his suppressed um, um, his su su suppressed expression, his relationship with his father, his relationship with Atticus, and then his kind of coming out over the next couple of episodes are all kind of blended in. So I think I might speak to that yeah. more uh, as we talk about the uh, the next few episodes. Cool. Yeah, let's 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 circle back to it then. Um, yeah. So going back to Hippolyta, though, um, what an exciting thing to, to see on screen, and um, her character becomes one of the most powerful ones in the group going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, who literally mm -hmm. is able to take what she's learned in this episode and come back and save the day later. So, um, yeah, I love this. This um, she is able to name herself different things, right? And that's how she. Uh, mm. She becomes these these different versions of Hippolyta by naming herself. A couple of thoughts on that. One is that uh, for those of us who grow up with a lot of privilege, with every possible privilege, there's the sense that you can name yourself to be whatever you want to be, right? And I think that that's, that's, I don't know if we want to call it a myth that's taught to Americans in general, um, but if you experience any kind of uh, oppression either through uh, your poverty or, or race or gender or, or gender expression or, or um, uh, you cannot name yourself to be anything that's because uh, society will not enable you to become those things and so Hippolyta has this freedom when she steps out of our world right to name herself to become whatever she wants to be and I to bring this back to a later episode, uh, she then says to uh, Dee later on that she chooses to name herself mother and to come back to, to Dee. Uh, and so I felt that that was pretty powerful to foreshadow a, a few episodes. I, I mean, a character who felt that she didn't accomplish everything she could in life and then is able to and then chooses to go back for her daughter, like that sort of familial love. It's like a bond that that's, you know, goes beyond anything. Um, and it shows like ultimately, given the decision, she chose to be with her family versus a, a, endless possibilities, um, which very profound. I'm going to keep saying it. <laughs> uh, it's a good word. Uh, I had one other thing, just this idea of um, th this like godlike alien figure uh, in this episode who, who you know, rules the multiverse seemingly or teaches, at least teaches Hippolyta the ways. Um, I just thought that was badass. Like the, her, her introduction, her awesome hair, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the way that Hippolyta is like battling her way out of the spaceship and like figuring out, um, I, I just, all of it just was like very fun, timey-wimey kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> It's like an Af Afrofuturistic uh, Doctor Who, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> perfect, perfect. So episode eight is a reference to um, a racially insensitive word that, that I, I don't feel comfortable saying. If you're interested in the title of the episode, you can look it up. I, I just personally don't want to say it. But I will tell you about the episode. Atticus, Letty, Ruby, Montrose, and Diana attend the memorial for Emmett Till, who was a friend of Diana's. Diana is stopped by Lancaster, who demands she give him the Ori. And when she refuses, he casts a spell that leads to two malevolent spirits, Topsy and Bopsy, to haunt her. 
Atticus gives Christina the key to the Ori slash time machine in exchange for learning how to cast spells. Christina is planning to sacrifice Atticus at the fall equinox to be immortal. Ruby grows closer to Christina, but is hurt when she tells her that she does not care about Till's lynching. Gia arrives in Chicago, causing Letty to become angry with Atticus. Montrose and Atticus reconcile. Atticus says he's, he visited the future while at the Winthrop Observatory and will have a son by Letty named George, who will write the book Lovecraft Country. Letty, Letty trades the negative of her photos in exchange for Christina casting a spell. Montrose and Atticus cast a spell to protect them, but nothing happens. Two men kill Christina in the same manner as Till and dump her corpse into Lake Michigan, but she revives. A suddenly more appreciative Ruby tells Letty of her relationship with William slash Christina. Diana is attacked by Topsy and Bopsy and collapses. Lancaster attempts to enter Letty's house to find the Ori, but when he cannot, he and his policeman shoot up the house. A policeman tries to shoot Atticus, but a Shoggoth appears, who kills the policeman and tears off Lancaster's arm. Letty observes that Atticus's spell worked after all. So this is a massive episode. So much happens. We're going to have a lot to talk about. But I, starting with the memorial of Emmett Till, when um, mm. when I was in high school, I took a multicultural studies class and learned about Emmett Till for the first time. And I remember being shocked that I didn't know more about it. I remember being shocked that and this is this is, you know, at this time, I was still pretty young and, and you know, ignorant to a lot of this stuff. But just even hearing the story, you know, right away, like how massive this is for a child to be killed in this way and and you know it's still happening today this is this is a horrific um you know example of it but then you know the the story goes on that Emmett's mother left an open casket so everyone could see what happened at the and it's just it's one of the most like heartbreaking things of all time and to to you know thread that into the story similar to how how Tulsa's threaded into the story I think creates a lot of weight and impact yeah I remember um, there's some foreshadowing, right? Um, when there are, when the kids are all around the Ouija board, uh, I think, I can't remember if it was episode two or three, uh, probably episode three. Um, and Emmett is one of the kids around the Ouija board. And I remember looking, mm-hmm. um, they call, I think he has a nickname or something, but I remember at the time being like, wait, why is this familiar? And doing a Google search or something, and and finding, uh, oh shit, this is Emmett Till, and he's a character in in Lovecraft Country, um, and so yeah, that totally like blew by me. I didn't realize that that he was one of her friends until this episode. Yeah, yeah, I think I even mentioned Emmett Till in our uh, the episode where. Um ruby experiences what it's like to be white for the first time in the show um and i was like oh there's almost an emmett till type moment with the police um getting ready to attack this child and uh i had no idea that we were going to come back and actually show the emmett till story um in this way and i I think this might be my favorite episode of the entire series um i think this is where like all the elements come together and work at their best um and also it's like to me, it's also the most frightening <laughs> um, episode. Uh, the you know a child being pursued by these 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 demons, and then we talked about in our last episode um, that Remy was on as a guest. We spoke about how in the in the book it was a uh, his name's like I think Horace in the book, Horace, it's a, yeah. a boy um, instead. But he's pers- he's he's pursued by these images of 
um, these caricatures of blackness uh, as perceived by white people. And we get the same kind of thing going on here, but something about putting it and bringing it to life on screen, um, it, it just works better for me. And it, it, it was scarier, in my opinion. Um, and the way that these <laughs> they followed uh, D everywhere, I don't know. It, it really got me. And then, um, and then, yeah, the crescendo of ending the episode with this crazy shootout and the 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 Shogoth uh, tearing into all these police. It was so awesome. Um, it's just it was a roller coaster of an episode, and and it really worked. Yeah, there's so much that happens in this episode. I feel like it's part of the the, the crescendo, right, of the of the series that there are all these threads that need to be mm-hmm. pulled together. But I'm super glad that they uh, had an episode that focused on one the experience of of, of a young person, a child, um, um, mm-hmm. and and then two uh, that we got to have a whole episode devoted to to D to Diana, uh, and I love her transformation. Uh, over the the course of the episode where she becomes more determined she tells out like she tears into the cops right uh, uh like has that verbal mm-hmm. confrontation with them when she spit on him i, I misha green was <laughs> saying that that was that was improvised so the the spitting really? on him was improvised and i was like oh my god what <laughs> a what a moment <laughs> so this this is the um so if I can flash forward just for a second, the image that we are left with, right, is Diana for the whole series. Uh, and it is a powerful one. Yeah. <laughs> the, our last few seconds are, oh, of yeah. the series are with Diana. And this is the buildup. This is the uh, where yep. we see her unleashed, right, her transformed. Uh, um, when we see her wailing on the... Um, was it Topsy and Bopsy uh, uh, in the garage? I feel the same sort of like um, the worst horror movies to me, uh, besides ones with clowns and, and dolls, <laughs> are ones with uh, <laughs> where children are in jeopardy, um, and uh, and then to see her, I almost didn't want Montrose to go in there at the end. I wanted to see her just take them out. Mm-hmm. So you don't you don't love it? I'm assuming, right? With the with the clowns and the children <laughs> I, in danger. I have not seen it because of that. <laughs> uh, so I, I think you're touching on something though that I that I definitely have written down is that um, D fights back, gets angry, and um, stands up to all these forces arrayed against her. And um, she still obviously succumbs to them in some way, and 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 you know she she's gonna lose lose her arm due to this. But um, I thought there was a message there about like the reaction to have is to get angry and to fight back, um, and it, it felt like that was directed at the audience of like if you are in these situations of experiencing oppression, like don't just take it like and um i think that's a powerful message right um it's not saying you're going to be um immune to you know what could happen to you but that that is preferable to just being scared and 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 not doing anything i guess i don't know that was the message i was getting do you you think that that's what was being said yeah i mean i I definitely you know it's dangerous and it can be dangerous to, to fight back and so like putting your life in jeopardy is like you know, always a gamble, definitely. But I, I think the right thing to do is fight back, whether it's physical or, or you know, verbal or whatever it is, like yeah. to stand up. Um, but, 
it's scary, man. It's like, you know, putting your life on the line isn't something that I feel like I have to do very often. So just, it, right. it's, it, you know, it's a privilege thing. And it's like in that situation. Yeah, easy, easy for us to say. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, Diana and the, that last scene uh, for the whole series in episode 10. Uh, I'll, I'll hold on to that. Um, maybe, maybe we can bring, come back to that. Uh, but I think this is really important, this whole uh, choosing to fight back. Love it. Yeah, let's save it for the very end. Um, I did have one other thing for this episode I wanted to bring up, though, because honestly, like, I don't think I quite understand what is happening. And I wanted to get both of your takes on it, because I assume I'm I don't know if I'm missing something or, or, or what. But Christina in this episode chooses to die as Emmett Till died. And the only thing I could think is that this is an attempt by Christina to experience something and to feel something because we see ruby sort of accuse her of like you don't feel anything do you and she admits like no i don't and then christina it's like she's trying to feel it and to like understand what happened and it's one of those it's it's an interesting moment for christina as a character where i'm trying to figure out what is going on here like is this christina trying to understand the black experience like I, i is that what's actually going on because if if so, it doesn't seem to really go anywhere. Like she doesn't seem changed by this moment as the series progresses. I don't know. What was your read on that, Remy? I've thought a lot about Christina as kind of a stand-in for um, modern. I don't know if modern day is the right word for this, but the race, the systemic racism that um, that seems prevalent today. Uh, as, as opposed, we tend to think like, oh, that that uh, really overt personalized racism where people are throwing the n bomb around and and enacting, um, desiring to to put violence directly on 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 black bodies. Where today, uh, a lot of people claim not to be racist, right, and um, but still support systemic racism. I I think of Christina Braithwaite as kind of a stand-in for the white audience in a lot of ways. Um, and so I'm wondering if this is like, Hey, I'm white. I'm trying to understand. I get it now. You know, like, is, is that what's going on there? Mm. She's also like a total sociopath. So like maybe not a hundred percent related there, but <laughs> it was hard to watch, obviously, and knowing the context of what's happening and knowing the context of like, this is what happened to Emmett Till. Um, but I think I think you're hitting on it. I, I, you know, I didn't know what to make of it really either. I, but I think that it's it's got to do something with um, just just like a a white person attempting to empathize. And but like you said, Luke, it doesn't it doesn't seem to have any implications going forward. She doesn't she doesn't change by it. It doesn't seem like she learned anything by it. It doesn't seem like she really even like is scarred by it. So I don't really know what that means. And like, really, I guess it probably means that, you know, a white audience trying to go through something can't even comp- still can't comprehend in certain ways. Cause it's different. Like I, I I'm not really sure it's, it's never going to be the so same as actually maybe being, black I, I had one thought, maybe her in vulnerability is a metaphor for white privilege. Uh, so even though she attempts yeah. to go through, she doesn't lose her life the way that Emmett Till did. She doesn't, she's in full control of the situation and she knows she's going to be okay yeah. at the end of it. Um, and so maybe, right. maybe that's 
maybe that's the connection there. Yeah, yeah. no, you're you're right. I think you're you're touching on it and what it is. I think there is a moment we can see in episode ten, which I'll I'll bring back this. I'll bring this back up, um, where maybe Christina does something she wouldn't have done otherwise. So maybe it does have some small effect. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. It's like no matter how much you might be able to uh, look at something like the story of Emmett Till and understand what happened, there's a shield of whiteness that prevents you from experiencing it in the same way that black people do when they read about Emmett Till, when they think about what happened to Emmett Till. Um, I think that is a lesson right now. I think that there is still value in doing that. Um, I, I think that as a white person myself, like putting myself in that situation and trying to empathize has been very beneficial to me in understanding these things. So I, I don't want to say that this, you can't do it and that, that there's not value to be had there. I just think it's good to be aware that there is a shield present for you that isn't there for other people. And and um, I, I agree. I think Christina Braithwaite is someone who is maybe performing the action, but not actually learning the lesson. Um, but I don't necessarily, I don't know, maybe Misha Green is saying this, but I don't co-sign the, the idea that like, it is impossible to learn the lesson. I think you can. It's just you have to understand that there are certain barriers there. Okay, so episode nine is Rewind 1921. Hippolyta returns to Chicago to find Atticus, Letty, and Montrose struggling to keep Diana alive after her after her being cursed by Lancaster. Ruby summons Christina, who uses Hippolyta's blood to reset the curse, but warns that because Lancaster was the only one who knew the curse, it cannot fully be lifted. Christina visits and taunts a dying Lancaster and convinces Ruby to aid her in her quest for immortality, even after Ruby learns that the spell will kill Tick. The others decide to use Hiram's multiverse machine to travel back in time to 1921 Tulsa, where Tick's mother's family held the Book of Names before it was destroyed in the Tulsa Race Massacre. Upon arriving in 1921, Tick, Letty, and Montrose witness a a young Montrose being beaten by his father. The adult Montrose flees. Tick goes looking for Montrose and finds him watching his younger self rebuke a friend of his for being a F slur before the pair of them, as well as young George and Dora, are set upon a white mo- by a white mob. Tick comes to the rescue. Letty is saved from attackers by Tick's mother's family who hide her in their home as it is attacked by another mob. And Letty convinces Tick's grandmother to hand over the book of names by promising to safeguard her family and their legacy. The trio flee the burning city and return to 1955 through the portal. You know, I said the last one was my favorite, um, and I think it is. I think the last one is my favorite, but man, this is right there. This is my top three, and uh, (laughs) as I referenced before, seeing Tulsa uh, in a way that is probably even more uh, in-depth than what we saw in Watchmen. Um, Once again, something about the planes flying through the air and dropping firebombs just seems so unreal that if it wasn't true i wouldn't believe it but when i you know i do the research on it it's like no that really happened it's what's so wild about it um and then yeah putting these characters in this moment where they're having to experience it and it's all caught up in this time travel story um just so just so good and so deeply personal to montrose 
um, that he really takes center stage here. And, and he's one of my favorite characters, if, if not my favorite from the book. Um, and I think this is what really drove home the character in the show where I was like, okay, they're, they're really exploring mantras in a way that I, that I actually love. Um, and this helped me to forgive some of the earlier missteps with the character because this was just powerful stuff. I've said it on almost every episode, but just having learned about Tulsa in 2019 because of Watchmen, yeah. um, and then now seeing it here in, in Lovecraft Country and, and just seeing that these filmmakers and these storytellers can, uh, you know, bring awareness to to something that until recently people weren't that familiar with and just show how horrific it is. And, and similar to the, the book, this is very much like shoes on the ground, like you're there in, in the Tulsa massacre, whereas I feel like we sort of got flashes from a child's perspective in Watchmen and, you know, sort of a moment of it. Um, but this is like deep in it and the and the want to save people because of the time traveling element which is always there in in a time traveling story but just like this is a true story you know what i mean like this isn't Mm -hmm. this isn't like a a fictionalized sort of time traveling story it's it's this is a true tragedy that's happened where i don't know it it could this is if you were ever going to change history this is going to be the time um, and so like the, the want to, to change everything and even like Montrose struggling with, you know, wanting to save the, the, his friend that, that is eventually killed. Uh, I, I just can't even, you know, that's the stuff that you, you would grapple with if in a time traveling story like this. So I'm glad they went there. And then, um, all the stuff to do with the ancestors and, and actually getting to meet them and interact with them and see them as actual people and not thinking of them as like, oh, thanks. Thankfully, you know, grandpa, grandma did this back in the day. And, and, you know, that's helping me. But getting to see like the sacrifices that they made and ultimately the decision by Tick's grandmother to hand over the book and and all of that Mm -hmm. was, I mean, it's like the sacrifices, the familial sacrifices, the things you give up for your family, especially in, in black America, um, to keep them safe or to, 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 you know, hopefully give them a better life than you had. And, uh, you know, we see it come full circle with the episode full circle, but this, the, the idea of familial love and the sacrifices that are, that are there is, is, you know, pretty prevalent throughout the story. Yeah. I just wanted to echo what both of you said about, uh, how I'm steal your, your word, James, how profound it is, to, uh, to, to see the Tulsa, uh, race massacre, you know, actually depicted and, and made brought to life for us. Right. Uh, I think, I've been thinking about this and I think about the different historical moments that, that we're taught in um, our U.S. history classes um, and how it's possible that this may have been mentioned in a textbook as like a sentence, you know, but not, yeah, not given any depth, not given any focus. And do you know do you know what what massacre I know a lot more about the Boston massacre? Yes, I just yeah. thought of that. Yeah. It's like this idea of like you know how much time do we spend talking about the Boston massacre and the, and the what came of that and all that and then this idea that this happened in America and I didn't even know not only did I not know it happened I don't know the ramifications what what happened because of that or anything. Um, and so it's just like, unfortunately, probably not a, not a lot yeah. is part of the answer to that. And how many people know <laughs> not that a lot of things changed is what I'm saying. The first casualty of the American revolution in the Boston massacre was a black man. Um, I think a yeah. freedman, mm. but I, I just wanted to say that here we are looking to HBO 
look at the fucking HBO mm-hmm. to teach us these deeply important historical moments. We're looking to a show based on a on a comic, right? We're looking to a show based. Uh, if you're talking about The Watchmen, uh, you know, which mm-hmm. uh, uh, brought focus to the uh, the Tulsa massacre, and and then to a show that carries the name of this um, racist uh, pulp hack writer in a lot of ways, uh, uh, you know, who was living uh, contemporary to uh, this race massacre and was part of that culture. Um, And, but we're looking to these shows um, to educate us. And I don't know what that's, I think that says one thing, it's a sorry state of our education um system but it also speaks to the power of um genre fiction to right those wrongs when we do get political when we do bring in when when we choose not to ignore uh and whitewash history this is something we've been circling back around to throughout our entire coverage of this just like how powerful art can be in 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 you know, writing those wrongs and, and educating and the role that art plays in a, in a, in a society that needs to learn from its past ills, I think is, is really important. And so I'm glad to see it being brought to life in this way, but it is also kind of an indictment on our history classes. I do want to talk about just the moment uh, and, and like the, the bridging of, of families and, and the idea of like sticking together as a community where, you know, Tick's grandmother basically passes the book on to Letty and then Letty just like having Letty hasn't been in war and from everything that we've seen she hasn't lived the life that Montrose has had to live sort of Mm. um and like I'm not saying that she's I am saying she's lived an easier life potentially than those two in terms of like horrific things happening to them but then again I don't know fully we don't we don't have the full context of her whole life but um you know it's said early on how um Montrose keeps saying like you don't know what we're going into you don't understand you don't get it and and Atticus is like basically like the implication is he's been through war so he does get it and he's like um and but then we have Letty coming into the situation and Letty is the one who's there with the family while their home is burned while they all die trying to defend their their family and then we see how she's affected by that and how family becomes so much more of an important of an element of her life after this and uh just like the shot of her carrying that book down the streets as the fire fire bombs are just raining down and like like she's invulnerable to it walking through it Mm -hmm. um it gives me goosebumps it's just i I, it's it's a great moment for the character and and i just i don't know i thought that this this it's profound it's profound guys (laughs) you were talking a lot about cgi i think in the previous uh um podcast episode uh, for the the show mm-hmm. for the, for the first half of the show, and I just wanted to point out, Jernay Smollett uh, tweeted a picture of herself in the ER with her arm burnt, uh, saying something like, "Letty may be invulnerable, oh, wow. but not Jernay Smollett." And so she was oh, actually wow, burned in the filming of that. So it's not all CGI. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, if I can, um, this I'm still I'm, I'm probably going to go back and watch this. This one. This particular episode was really uh, deep and, and complicated for me, and partly because uh, I grew up in, in um, I grew up in an environment uh, that was uh, abusive, homophobic, and um, 
there was just it was dripping with toxic masculinity and so in addition to the the the, the history around Tulsa uh that was one part of this this episode that deeply affected me and really connected me to Montrose uh in a in a deeper way is just him going through all this PTSD right uh as he watched re experiences all the trauma of his youth uh and you see how that's bred into him how that or not bred into him but it's deeply infused into him so that he is now carrying this forward into the next generation basically right with with Atticus. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the generational pain being, being passed along, right? Like this is, you know, the abuse he suffered at the hands of his father and then he perpetrated onto Atticus and, and how that's all tied to masculinity. Absolutely. There's a lot going on there. So this is actually also a really important moment for Atticus because I think this is the first time where touching back on the moment we, we saw in the previous episode where he is so, he doesn't understand what's going on with his father and he's angry about it and accusatory. Um, and then we see growth here as Atticus witnesses what the reality of uh, his sexuality has been for him in his life and what he's experienced because of it. And then we see Atticus rise to the occasion, pick up the bat and be the, 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 ma- the mystery man of his memories. Right. And that, you know, time travel, fun time travel way of like, Oh, it was always this way. Um, and it just, to me, is in a very important moment for Atticus and Montreux's relationship and that he fully understands, or, or at least mostly understands, what, what Montreux went through and is able to accept him and his identity um, and also what he has essentially given up to be his father. Um, that, that's, to me, some of the most powerful stuff that, that takes place in that alleyway. He still, he still loved his son. You know what I mean? Like, he, he, he was haunted by all the stuff that went on with his father and then he felt society's pressure and everything to stay closeted as he had been. And then, you know, he, all of the pressure of being closeted in that way. And, uh, and then still being like, but I was still your daddy. Like, no matter what, like I, I, um, I gave it all up to be your dad basically. And like what mm-hmm. that means to a person and, and like, yeah, to see, to see them kind of reconcile. And then, and then in next episode, there's, there's some stuff that goes on with them that I'd like to talk about when we get there. But I do think this is a good time to go into the last episode. Last episode is called Full Circle. Tick recites the spell to open the book of names. Then he and Letty fall unconscious. Their subconscious slash spirits are brought to an astral plane, and it's there that they learn the truth about magic from their ancestors. They are tasked with casting Hannah's spell, which will which will use Christina's spell against her to make to take magic from the Braithwites. The ancestors help Tick and Letty heal D, then send them back to their bodies to enact their plan. Atticus, Letty, Hippolyta, and Gia weren't able to sabotage Christina. Her spell for immortality at Artem was successful, and it ended up killing Atticus in the process. Letty, who had been pushed from a tremendous height by Christina earlier, seemed to seemed as if she had succumbed to her fall, since Christina seemingly removed the mark of Cain from her earlier. But after the completion of Christina's ceremony, Letty's mark appears again, and she was alive and well. From there, Letty begins reading the spell that she was meant to cast in order to save everyone with the help of Gia to bind Christina and Atticus closer to one another using her tails the spell was successfully cast by Letty she had removed the magic not only from Christina but all white people 
The magic was with Letty and all black people now. Crushed by a falling structure, Christina was unable to move and was left alone as the family carried Atticus's body away. Dee appears and it's revealed that she has a robotic arm. She and her Shogoth come to find Christina and instead of helping her, Dee chokes her until she dies. We didn't even touch on the introduction of Lovecraft Country, the book, <laughs> into the show, which I, my head was exploding when, when they bring it in. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's, it, it's supposed to be written by uh, one of their ancestors, uh, or, or, or I guess Atticus's son, Atticus's right? Atticus's son, and, George. Um, yeah. but, but when they talk about the book, he, they mention several big changes that are real. <laughs> Christina is a man, you know, D is, is a boy named Horace. Um, some of these major changes that are real and true to what actually was changed from the book. So I don't know. I, I love that it was this really interesting nod to it. But what a way to sort of claim the book and, and to take it and make it written by this character uh, who is black um, and take it away from Matt Ruff in a way, in a way that I think he would support, you know, honestly. Yeah, I think I'm he sure he loved support, it. So yeah. um, it really does claim this story in a, in, a, in a meta way too, which I thought was pretty fun. Yeah, and again, the, there's this moment where where Letty and, and Tick are able to interact with their ancestors and he has his moments with his mother um, that I think are really, you know, heartwarming in ways and, and uh, just getting to see black people having this power and understanding it and saying like all right let's fucking go let's let's use this to to finally end all of this this basically taking out the system right the systemic Mm -hmm. racism and and taking out the privilege out of the equation hopefully and evening the playing field um i just you know again the the ancestral stuff i feel is really powerful the the pacing of this episode was really interesting and um yeah the first half or maybe even two-thirds of the episode was very was actually very slow for a climactic uh final episode Mm -hmm. and so i thought a lot about that because i when i trust uh, a filmmaker uh and and showrunner as much as i do misha green i i i always think this is deliberate what is she trying to do here uh and i think it's james what you hit on is that it all of that was just lovingly devoted to focus on family, focus on heritage and ancestry, and just those intergenerational connections, the connections that are the matrilineal and maternal connections, um, uh, all the, going all the way back to Hannah, and the fatherly connections too, right? Between Montrose and Atticus mm-hmm. and Atticus's unborn son. Um, so... Yeah, yeah. You have this line going from Hannah all the way to uh, Diana, and then you have this line going uh, mainly from, from um, um, I think, Montrose and George as the father figures down to Atticus's son. So that was something mm-hmm. I was very, very aware of going into the rest of the, the episode. You talked about sort of the it's, it's a little uneven, and I do think that this is an episode that because they had to do some wrapping up, and they because they wanted to try to do a lot, and I, I I don't know something about this episode wasn't quite what I was what I was imagining, I guess. And and like coming coming out of the episode, I felt like I liked the episode, but I think the you know the previous three or four were like on a different level, maybe. And and you mm-hmm. know it, endings are tough, and and I get that, so that could probably have something to do with it as well. Although I don't know that the show's ended for good, I will say. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, like there could be a season two. Um, so before we get there, though, I, I wanted to something I forgot to mention. I thought Gio was done really dirty by Atticus in the previous episode. Uh, yeah, when she comes all the way from Korea and is is told off, you know, and I was really glad to see Gia be able to be integrated, welcome to the family by Atticus um, and and have a role in this this final chapter, because uh, that that episode six made her such an interesting character that it would have been a real disservice to just abandon her abandon her in that way. And, and I'm really glad that her story does come full circle. Um, I, I think for the most part, I I'm left with some questions about her, I guess, but um, I, I'm still satisfied enough to where that character was left. You just made me think of uh, something that I definitely wanted to touch on too, is the moment of joy that we get in the car where they're all singing mm-hmm. together. Um, and you know, Gia's in there and, and like you said, it's, it is one family and, and really um, something that stood out to me in that scene is the number of women that are important in this show. Um, because I didn't, I, you know, it, it had been happening and I didn't even, it wasn't something that I was actively thinking of um, that, that you know, was very centered around women. And, and it, clearly it is. But uh, getting to see them all in the car and being like, oh, I love that character. I love that character. All of these characters. And there's only, I think there's only two men in the car and the rest are, are all women. And I think that that's kind of not the norm, I would say, in general. And Christina's in the, the main yeah. villains even in the car. Yeah, that's true. That, that is the one thing <laughs> I keep thinking yeah. about. It's like she is she is wearing Ruby here and and participating in this. And what does that mean? I don't know. Yeah. So I just wanted to to emphasize what James was saying is that yeah, women are really important, and and and, and uh, uh, Ruby doubly represents uh, both you know two women in the car. <laughs> it, it it is it is odd to have because that moment is different when you think about Christina performing it as Ruby rather than yeah. it actually being Ruby singing along. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. To, I, like I want to go back and watch it now with that knowledge because I, I didn't know in the t- in the moment that it that the the swap had had happened. I didn't see that coming. That was a surprise. Yeah, I was super bummed that Ruby dies. By the way, like re- yeah, I, then, did I wanted to ask you guys coming. about that um, because I, I, it felt almost like I wanted more from like to understand more about Ruby. Um, really, her final moment in the show as actual Ruby is this argument she has with uh, Letty in the in the graveyard. And we get the forgiveness and the um, the embrace, but that's Christina, so it's not really Ruby, and it's it's weird because it totally undercuts that moment um, of of that the sister bond, um, and I don't know, it makes Ruby really tragic, I guess, in that way because it's like instead she was just duped, I guess, by Christina and and and, and killed. I think that there's probably some ambiguity there because. Um it's possible that she's kind of not not fully dead. <laughs> uh, when Gia does her her magic and you see her going sifting through uh, Atticus's and, and Christina's memories, there is a moment where Ruby is like in bed, like in a coma or something. So and which yeah. she would have to be in order for um, Christina to t- make the potion, right? I, I think yeah. she can't I, I will be say, fully dead. Yeah, I will say another like grain of salt with basically everything that happens post episode seven, because it's a multiverse story at that point. So <laughs> realistically, like anyone can still be around. We could get an Atticus from another story. You know what I mean? It, it could get crazy if they wanted to bring people back. Uh, there's there's ways. Sure. 
Uh, but I, I was specifically mentioning how in the book, um, the character uh, who's being preserved for the potions is said to be in sort of a near death coma. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the show, uh, Christina says they're dead. So wow. um, if, if we take Christina's word, then Ruby, it has to be dead for this potion to work. Although I think there is some ambiguity there of whether or not that maybe, maybe Christina was lying when, when she said that it's possible. Um, I did want to mention, okay, so we had touched on a few things in previous episodes that we wanted to circle back on. So let's start doing that here. <laughs> um, there there was a moment where Christina threw uh, Letty off of the tower, uh, and Letty appears to die, but then we find out that she is okay. In the flashes, there um, it seems like maybe Christina chose to restore the mark to bring uh, to, to bring Letty back. And that was my, my I alluded to earlier, like maybe that is Christina having connected somewhat with the black experience or the Emmett Till stuff. Like otherwise I don't know why she would do that. And, 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 and also her relationship to Ruby, right? Cause she had promised not to harm her. And it, that, that relationship I think is a uh, metaphor essentially for her relationship to black people. And even though she abuses it, mm, there's something there, right? Where she, she does that. And um, th- that was my one thing I could say, maybe and Christina, it, it was changed in some small way. That would be it. Yeah. At the very least, she she was doing it to keep her promise to Ruby that she wouldn't hurt Letty or something. You know, at the very right. least, that's what happened. That That's my take on that is and that that's my best way to explain that because I was sure that Letty was dead. <laughs> I mean, like uh, in in that moment, I, I don't yeah. know if I was I knew that she was going to come back in some way. I didn't know how. Uh, but <laughs> considering that yeah. Christina's last words to her before uh, knocking her over was um, the the promise I made this promise to Ruby um, that 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 makes sense that she would maybe restore the invulnerability mark. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about yeah. that as a piece of filmmaking. Um, like I feel like they wanted to get the full emotional impact of oh no, Letty's dead uh, from the audience. Um, mm-hmm. So I have mixed feelings about that the execution of it. So yeah. To speak. Mm. Do you guys want to talk about uh, D at the end? Yeah, yeah. That scene. So I'm thinking that Misha Green and the creators of Lovecraft Country want to leave us with a punchline, right? That I feel like that last scene is is very important. It's weighty. And um, there are all of these characters who had every reason to dispatch uh, Christina, you know, our our... Um, big bad for the season one and they chose to run with Diana um, and so that really intrigues me I'm wondering what I guess that's one question I have for for you all is what kind of message do you think um, uh, Lovecraft Country's creators want to leave with us and I have some thoughts on that, but that last scene where Diana has mm. just uh, brutally and intimately killed uh, Christina, she doesn't just choke her; she like mm-hmm. like pops her neck, or explodes something. her, yeah, it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah, pops her neck out, yeah. and then she backs up, and the Shoggoth comes up behind. It's the black Shoggoth that took out the white Shoggoth uh, earlier, yeah. right? And yeah, yeah. and then it rears its head back and is howling at the full moon. Uh, like it is 
just chilling. Yeah. <laughs> so that's going to be iconic for sure. Yeah. Um, to me, to me, it just represents that that is D snuffing out white supremacy. Like that's what it, that's what it represented to me. That that's her choking out and ending her this this world's version of white supremacy. Um, and and I, that's what I walk away with. And the, the idea that you know black people have the magic going forward and white people are barred from it. Um, that that's just all of what it represents to me is like that it's all been taken back now and it's over yeah. and and that's where I think I land on it. And she embodies genre, right? Like she's got the robotic arm, she's got the the monster working for her, and then I think it's also really important that she is um, in this new generation. It's being passed along, and it's about young people now who are alive today and reclaiming and and um participating in genre and and being unapologetic about it um and and yeah. d is sort of a, a symbol of power i think in, in this moment and yeah i think a perfect way to end the series the other thing uh, just to call back to when you were talking about um uh the the only way to combat white supremacy is to fight it right is to choose to fight it uh, mm -hmm. i think james that might have been something that you mentioned uh a little bit earlier in this episode um and I think that that's what we're seeing here is of all the ways she could have shown mercy to Christina, um, but no, she chose to, uh, as James was saying, to snuff out white supremacy. So it is, the, the focus is on the next generation and the focus is on fighting to the end of white supremacy. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely, man. I think that's a perfect way to end the series. And now that we've arrived at the end, we're going to take a vote on what was better, uh, the book or the show. This is something we've been doing this year for the first time. I think this is your first time participating in it with us, Remy. Um, so let's let's go around. I'm going to save your vote for last. Um, James, do you want to start? You know, this was this was tough because I, I think I like both of these near equally. Um, but there there's a couple of things that, that have the show edge out the book for me. Um, and it really just is, you know, some of it comes down to that meta level that we've talked about so much is what this show represents, especially right now in America, um, what they were able to achieve, the way that they swung for the fences, the reclaiming of, of genre for black characters in this way, the entire cast was amazing. Um, some of the, like I said, some, there's like three or four episodes in here that'll stick with me forever. And, um, I, I, I'm going to take the show because I think that it's it's in a way more important right now. And I think that it's also, you know, it's it's really refreshing. And, and to use my word one more time, I found it to be extremely profound. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I went into this show thinking it was going to be a landslide for the show. I, I honestly didn't think it'd be close, um, but it ended up being closer than I thought. Um, there were a few things that I think stylistically for me um, weren't, it wasn't what I was expecting and, and I had to force myself to come around. I have an interesting sort of perspective on, I don't know what interesting, but I have, I have my own personal feelings about like, how to deal with the supernatural. And, and this show went really against what I normally think of like less is more sometimes. Um, it went for more is more. <laughs> um, yeah. And all of those things come together with a couple of the missed moments we talked about, um, mantras in particular, the murder uh, of Yahima and, and some of these things. That it, it, there's a little bit of unevenness throughout the series. And in some ways it does feel like overloaded with so much content and so much happens um, that it maybe suffers a little bit at times. 
all that being said, though, it is still the show um, for all the reasons you just said. So important. Um, I love to see it reclaimed in this way. And I would have, you know, I'm excited for the possibility of a second season um, for the first time. It's like, uh, you know, yeah, take it away. Go somewhere that the books never go and do something fully, uh, fully in Misha Green's control because um, we see some of this stuff that she added to the show is, you know, fantastic. So anyway, I'm rambling. It's the show for me. How about you, Remy? Um, you know, it's funny, uh, at different moments. Yeah. I think I thought maybe they were close, but now that you've put me on the spot and made me really think about the impact of both, um, if I can rewind just a little bit, when I first picked up Lovecraft country, the book, which was a few years ago, um, uh, two or three years ago, I remember being really excited at, uh, what Matt Ruff was doing right for, um, uh, even as a white guy for, uh, bringing, um, for subverting these Lovecraftian tropes, uh, uh racist tropes. Um, and, and I also loved the meta lit- literary love of the main characters. Uh, uh, just when Montro, even Montrose, uh, who, who is continually dissing, um, um, uh, pulp, uh, literature and its racism uh he he and george and atticus when they're going back and forth and talking about science fiction i I just i love that um but i think that lovecraft country the book helped open the door for lovecraft country the series and uh i think that this is where it rightfully belongs lovecraft country is largely about the horrors of the black experience in America and reclaiming and subverting uh, genre for um, blacks and other POCs. And I feel like it's true ownership is with black creators. So I'm really glad that it's made that shift. And I think Matt Ruff was also um, uh, really glad of that too. Um, I think it's way more ambitious than the book. And it's the sort of ambitious, ambitious storytelling and, and filmmaking that even where it fails, uh, it's failed because it's taking these risks um, and it succeeds better than really solid, safe filmmaking, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, so I think that's what yep. I wanted to give it kudos yeah, yeah. for being so ambitious and, and not shying away from that. Um, and I think it's going to open the doors for all kinds of other work to be done, um, including, uh, hopefully future seasons of Lovecraft country. And then the one other thing that I wanted to add was it's not just about race. It's not just about pulp. Some of the family storytelling in this, uh, the redemption of Montrose, uh, to me is where I, I'm not a crying type, but I came pretty dang close when Atticus um, the letter to Montrose is read, uh, and he's basically mm. uh, that's a that's a trope that's been subverted that's subverted by this show, right? Is usually it's the young person who is saved by the older person, but here you have the young person, uh, um, the son, helping to to redeem and save the father, uh, and Montrose deserves that second chance. So anyhow, uh, definite thumbs up for the the show. (laughs) 
yeah, it sounds like we're unanimous for the show. Uh, we didn't mention how different this is than the book, um, but it is quite different. Um, the, the tone of this ending um, and Atticus survives the events of the book. So it, it really has been taken and changed in a dramatic way. And I think for the better, because like you said, this this story is in its rightful place, I think, in, in the hands it's in now um, and where it deserves to be. So... I think it's a good place to leave Lovecraft Country. What a journey it's been. Thank you so much for joining us, Remy, for these last two episodes. I highly recommend at least go back one episode and listen to, to Remy talk about Lovecraft Country, the, the novel, which he does have a lot of love for. Um, where can people find you online? I know you asked. I asked you last time, but just in case, where can people find you? And if you were, you know, you got a new thing coming out, you know, where would they find it? Um, I would say go to uh, Remy Mura. That's R-E-M-Y-M-U-R-A. Uh, either on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, you can find me there. Uh, I'd be happy to, to talk to you all about these things. And thank you so much for having me. This has been, it is, it is fun to experience the shows, but ah, it is so much fun to just nerd out about them like ad nauseum, like at length uh, afterwards. <laughs> like when you experience great film, yeah, great mean, literature, you just want to keep replaying it over and over again, right? And talking and pursuing yeah. every possible uh, line so thank you yeah you're touching on the 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 secret of the show that uh <laughs> james and i just wanted to do this so we invented a show to give us an excuse <laughs> no it's and it's awesome. you're welcome on any time man just let me know whenever you you want to come back because we love having you on i said it last time but i think you you're a great sort of a calming presence on a show where i can 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 kind of go off the rails a little bit i think it, it, it's perfect oh i feel super uh, honored. so yeah thanks for coming on yeah. man Oh, and I just wanted to encourage your listeners, like, uh, if they're picking this one up for the first time, if there's any show or any book that they just want to kind of cogitate on and they can't find anybody else to, to talk to about it, go, go find the Ink to Film episode for it. And if there isn't one, go, go bug uh, Luke and James to, to, to see if they'll, they'll make one for you. <laughs> thanks for saying that I really appreciate it man <laughs> alright uh, that's going to be it for Lovecraft's Country uh, see you later Remy alright yeah thanks again you guys thanks again to Remy for, for coming on the podcast always a pleasure to have him if you enjoyed this episode please let us know in the form of a rating or review on whatever platform you're using iTunes you know Google Play if you see us on YouTube any of that stuff leave a comment subscribe uh, and leave a review if possible all that good stuff. Yeah, it helps get the word out there and, and spread the show. And if you'd like to connect with us on social media, we are at Ink to Film on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Definitely do that. Uh, we'd love to have you follow us. If you want to support us another way, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Ink to Film. We have many different tiers, but our $2 tier gets you our monthly bonus episodes. We have like close to 30 now, I think, like 28 yeah, or 29. Um, so, you know, we, we talk about all kinds of different stuff, a lot of adaptation adjacent stuff, but also like we've talked about the, you know, upcoming adaptations in the news, all kinds of stuff. Uh, go check those out if you're interested. And we want to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, here we are at the end. I'm excited because we get to announce our very next project. We are going to be going into V for Vendetta, our, our second Alan Moore entry although it is the older version uh, or it, it predates watchmen as far as i know um and and then watching the the film um you know it's gonna be uh it's a it's another political one <laughs> it'll be an experience and uh it's gonna be right before the election and again we want to say get out there and vote, vote for joe biden <laughs> during the election yeah yeah uh Get out there and vote. Um, yeah, join me, man. It's it felt great. It's it really feels good to do. Um, I highly recommend. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's going to be it for this week. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.